Volume two, chapter six of The Last Man. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Christine Blashford, www.sidepodcast.com. The Last Man by Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley. Volume two, chapter six. I have lingered thus long on the extreme bank, the wasting shoal that stretched into the stream of life, dallying with the shadow of death. Thus long I have cradled my heart in retrospection of past happiness, when hope was. Why not for ever thus? I am not immortal, and the thread of my history might be spun out to the limits of my existence. But the same sentiment that first led me to portray scenes replete with tender recollections now bids me hurry on. The same yearning of this warm, panting heart that has made me in written words record my vagabond youth, my serene manhood, and the passions of my soul, makes me now recoil from further delay. I must complete my work." Here then I stand, as I said, beside the fleet waters of the flowing years, and now away. Spread the sail and strain with oar, hurrying by dark impending crags, adown steep rapids, even to the sea of desolation I have reached. Yet one moment, one brief interval, before I put from shore. Once, once again, let me fancy myself as I was in 2094, in my abode at Windsor. Let me close my eyes and imagine that the immeasurable boughs of its oak still shadow me. Its castle walls are near." Let fancy portray the joyous scene of the 20th of June, such as even now my aching heart recalls it. Circumstances had called me to London. Here I heard talk that symptoms of the plague had occurred in hospitals of that city. I returned to Windsor, my brow was clouded, my heart heavy. I entered the little park, as was my custom, at the Frogmore Gate, on my way to the castle. A great part of these grounds had been given to cultivation, and strips of potato-land and corn were scattered here and there. The rooks cawed loudly in the trees above. Mixed with their hoarse cries I heard a lively strain of music. It was Alfred's birthday. The young people, the Etonians, and the children of the neighbouring gentry held a mock fair, to which all the country people were invited. The park was speckled by tents, whose flaunting colours and gaudy flags waving in the sunshine added to the gaiety of the scene. On a platform erected beneath the terrace a number of the younger part of the assembly were dancing. I leaned against a tree to observe them. The band played the wild eastern air of Weber introduced in Aben Hassan. Its volatile notes gave wings to the feet of the dancers, while the lookers-on unconsciously beat time. At first the tripping measure lifted my spirit with it, and for a moment my eyes gladly followed the mazes of the dance. The revulsion of thought passed like keen steel to my heart. Ye are all going to die, I thought. Already your tomb is built up around you. A while, because you are gifted with agility and strength, you fancy that you live, but frail is the bower of flesh that encaskets life, dissoluble the silver cord that binds you to it. The joyous soul, charioted from pleasure to pleasure by the graceful mechanism of well-formed limbs, will suddenly feel the axle-tree give way, and spring and wheel dissolve in dust. Not one of you, O fated crowd, can escape, not one, not my own ones, not my Idris and her babes. Horror and misery! Already the gay dance vanished, the green sward was strewn with corpses, and the blue air above became fetid with deathly exhalations. Shriek, ye clarions, ye loud trumpets howl, pile dirge on dirge, rouse the funereal chords, let the air ring with dire wailing, let wild discord rush on the wings of the wind. Already I hear it, while guardian angels, attendant on humanity, their task achieved, hasten away, and their departure is announced by melancholy strains, faces all unseemly with weeping, forced open my lids. Faster and faster many groups of these woe-begone countenances thronged around, exhibiting every variety of wretchedness, well-known faces mingled with the distorted creations of fancy. Ashy, pale, Raymond and Perdita sat apart, looking on with sad smiles. Adrian's countenance flitted across, tainted by death. Idris, with eyes languidly closed and livid lips, was about to slide into the wide grave. The confusion grew, their looks of sorrow changed to mockery, they nodded their heads in time to the music, whose clang became maddening. 
I felt that this was insanity. I sprang forward to throw it off. I rushed into the midst of the crowd. Idris saw me. With light steps she advanced, as I folded her in my arms, feeling, as I did, that I thus enclosed what was to me a world, yet frail as the water-drop which the noonday sun will drink from the water-lily's cup. Tears filled my eyes, unwont to be thus moistened. The joyful welcome of my boys, the soft gratulation of Clara, the pressure of Adrian's hand, contributed to unman me. I felt that they were near, that they were safe, yet methought this was all deceit. The earth reeled, the firm and rooted trees moved, dizziness came over me, I sank to the ground. My beloved friends were alarmed, nay, they expressed their alarm so anxiously that I dared not pronounce the word plague that hovered on my lips, lest they should construe my perturbed looks into a symptom and see infection in my languor. I had scarcely recovered, and with feigned hilarity had brought back smiles into my little circle, when we saw Ryland approach. Ryland had something the appearance of a farmer, of a man whose muscles and full-grown stature had been developed under the influence of vigorous exercise and exposure to the elements. This was to a great degree the case, for, though a large-landed proprietor, yet being a projector and of an ardent and industrious disposition, he had on his own estate given himself up to agricultural labours. When he went as ambassador to the northern states of America, he for some time planned his entire migration, and went so far as to make several journeys far westward on that immense continent, for the purpose of choosing the site of his new abode. Ambition turned his thoughts from these designs, ambition which labouring through various lets and hindrances had now led him to the summit of his hopes in making him Lord Protector of England. His countenance was rough but intelligent, his ample brow and quick grey eyes seemed to look out over his own plans and the opposition of his enemies. His voice was stentorian, his hand stretched out in debate seemed by its gigantic and muscular form to warn his hearers that words were not his only weapons. Few people had discovered some cowardice and much infirmity of purpose under this imposing exterior. No man could crush a butterfly on the wheel with better effect, no man better cover a speedy retreat from powerful adversary. This had been the secret of his secession at the time of Lord Raymond's election. In the unsteady glance of his eye, in his extreme desire to learn the opinions of all, in the feebleness of his handwriting, these qualities might be obscurely traced, but they were not generally known. He was now our Lord Protector. He had canvassed eagerly for this post. His protectorate was to be distinguished by every kind of innovation on the aristocracy. This his selected task was exchanged for the far different one of encountering the ruin caused by the convulsions of physical nature. He was incapable of meeting these evils by any comprehensive system. He had resorted to expedient after expedient, and could never be induced to put a remedy in force till it came too late to be of use. Certainly the Ryland that advanced towards us now bore small resemblance to the powerful, ironical, seemingly fearless canvasser for the first rank among Englishmen. Our native oak, as his partisans called him, was visited truly by a nipping winter. He scarcely appeared half his usual height, his joints were unknit, his limbs would not support him, his face was contracted, his eye wandering, debility of purpose and dastard fear were expressed in every gesture. In answer to our eager questions, one word alone fell, as it were involuntarily from his convulsed lips, the plague. Where? everywhere we must fly all fly but whither no man can tell there is no refuge on earth it comes on us like a thousand packs of wolves we must all fly where shall you go where can any of us go these words were syllabled trembling by the iron man adrian replied whither indeed would you fly we must all remain and do our best to help our suffering fellow-creatures help said ryland there is no help great god who talks of help all the world has the plague then to avoid it we must quit the world observed adrian with a gentle smile Ryland groaned, cold drops stood on his brow. It was useless to oppose his paroxysm of terror, but we soothed and encouraged him, so that after an interval he was better able to explain to us the ground of his alarm. It had come sufficiently home to him. One of his servants, while waiting on him, had suddenly fallen down dead. The physician declared that he died of the plague. 
We endeavoured to calm him, but our own hearts were not calm. I saw the eye of Idris wander from me to her children, with an anxious appeal to my judgment. Adrian was absorbed in meditation. For myself, I own that Ryland's words rang in my ears. All the world was infected. In what uncontaminated seclusion could I save my beloved treasures until the shadow of death had passed from over the earth? We sunk into silence, a silence that drank in the doleful accounts and prognostications of our guest. We had receded from the crowd, and ascending the steps of the terrace sought the castle. Our change of cheer struck those nearest to us, and by means of Ryland's servants the report soon spread that he had fled from the plague in London. The sprightly parties broke up, they assembled in whispering groups, the spirit of gaiety was eclipsed, the music ceased, the young people left their occupations and gathered together. The lightness of heart which had dressed them in masquerade habits, had decorated their tents and assembled them in fantastic groups, appeared a sin against, and a provocative too, the awful destiny that had laid its palsying hand upon hope and life. The merriment of the hour was an unholy mockery of the sorrows of man. The foreigners whom we had among us, who had fled from the plague in their own country, now saw their last asylum invaded, and fear making them garrulous. They described to eager listeners the miseries they had beheld in cities visited by the calamity, and gave fearful accounts of the insidious and irremediable nature of the disease. We had entered the castle. Idris stood at a window that overlooked the park. Her maternal eyes sought her own children among the young crowd. An Italian lad had got an audience about him, and with animated gestures was describing some scene of horror. Alfred stood immovable before him, his whole attention absorbed. Little Evelyn had endeavoured to draw Clara away to play with him, but the Italian's tale arrested her. She crept near her lustrous eyes fixed on the speaker. Either watching the crowd in the park or occupied by painful reflection, we were all silent. Ryland stood by himself in an embrasure of the window. Adrian paced the hall, revolving some new and overpowering idea. Suddenly he stopped and said, I have long expected this. Could we in reason expect that this island should be exempt from the universal visitation? The evil is come home to us, and we must not shrink from our fate. What are your plans, my lord protector, for the benefit of our country?' "'For heaven's love, Windsor!' cried Ryland. "'Do not mock me with that title. "'Death and disease level all men. "'I neither pretend to protect nor govern a hospital. "'Such will England quickly become. "'Do you then intend now, in time of peril, "'to recede from your duties?' "'Duties? "'Speak rationally, my lord. "'When I am a plague-spotted corpse, "'where will my duties be? "'Every man for himself. "'The devil take the protectorship, say I, "'if it expose me to danger.' "'Faint-hearted man!' cried Adrian indignantly. "'Your countrymen put their trust in you, "'and you betray them.' "'I betray them,' said Ryland. "'The plague betrays me. "'Faint-hearted, it is well, shut up in your castle, "'out of danger, to boast yourself out of fear. "'Take the protectorship who will. "'Before God I renounce it.' "'And before God,' replied his opponent fervently, "'do I receive it. "'No one will canvass for this honour now. "'None envy my danger or labours. "'Deposit your powers in my hands. "'Long have I fought with death, and much,' "'he stretched out his thin hand, "'much have I suffered in the struggle. "'It is not by flying, but by facing the enemy that we can conquer. "'If my last combat is now about to be fought, "'and I am to be worsted, so let it be. "'But come, Ryland, recollect yourself. "'Men have hitherto thought you magnanimous and wise. "'Will you cast aside these titles?' Consider the panic your departure will occasion. Return to London. I will go with you. Encourage the people by your presence. I will incur all the danger. Shame, shame, if the first magistrate of England be foremost to renounce his duties. Meanwhile, among our guests in the park, all thoughts of festivity had faded. As summer flies are scattered by rain, so did this congregation, late noisy and happy, in sadness and melancholy murmurs break up, dwindling away apace. With the set sun and the deepening twilight, the park became nearly empty. Adrian and Ryland were still in earnest discussion. We had prepared a banquet for our guests in the lower hall of the castle, and thither Idris and I repaired to receive and entertain the few that remained. There is nothing more melancholy than a merry meeting thus turned to sorrow. The gala dresses, the decorations, gay as they might otherwise be, receive a solemn and funereal appearance. 
if such change be painful from lighter causes it weighed with intolerable heaviness from the knowledge that the earth's desolator had at last even as an arch-fiend lightly overleapt the boundaries our precautions raised and at once enthroned himself in the full and beating heart of our country idris sat at the top of the half-empty hall pale and tearful she almost forgot her duties as hostess her eyes were fixed on her children Alfred's serious air showed that he still revolved the tragic story related by the Italian boy. Evelyn was the only mirthful creature present. He sat on Clara's lap, and making matter of glee from his own fancies, laughed aloud. The vaulted roof echoed again his infant tone. The poor mother, who had brooded long over and suppressed the expression of her anguish, now burst into tears, and folding her babe in her arms, hurried from the hall. Clara and Alfred followed, while the rest of the company, in confused murmur which grew louder and louder, gave voice to their many fears. The younger part gathered round me to ask my advice, and those who had friends in London were anxious beyond the rest to ascertain the present extent of disease in the metropolis. I encouraged them with such thoughts of cheer as presented themselves. I told them exceedingly few deaths had yet been occasioned by pestilence, and gave them hopes as we were the last visited, so the calamity might have lost its most venomous power before it had reached us. The cleanliness, habits of order, and the manner in which our cities were built were all in our favour. As it was an epidemic, its chief force was derived from pernicious qualities in the air, and it would probably do little harm where this was naturally salubrious. At first I had spoken only to those nearest me, but the whole assembly gathered about me, and I found that I was listened to by all. My friends, I said, our risk is common, our precautions and exertions shall be common also. If manly courage and resistance can save us, we will be saved. We will fight the enemy to the last. Plague shall not find us a ready prey. We will dispute every inch of ground, and by methodical and inflexible laws pile invincible barriers to the progress of our foe. Perhaps in no part of the world has she met with so systematic and determined an opposition. Perhaps no country is naturally so well protected against our invader, nor has nature anywhere been so well assisted by the hand of man. We will not despair. We are neither cowards nor fatalists, but believing that God has placed the means for our preservation in our own hands, we will use these means to our utmost. Remember that cleanliness, sobriety, and even good humour and benevolence are our best medicines. There was little I could add to this general exhortation, for the plague, though in London, was not among us. I dismissed the guests, therefore, and they went thoughtful, more than sad, to await the events in store for them. I now sought Adrian, anxious to hear the result of his discussion with Ryland. He had in part prevailed, the Lord Protector consented to return to London for a few weeks, during which time things should be so arranged as to occasion less consternation at his departure. Adrian and Idris were together. The sadness with which the former had first heard that the plague was in London had vanished, the energy of his purpose informed his body with strength, the solemn joy of enthusiasm and self-devotion illuminated his countenance, and the weakness of his physical nature seemed to pass from him, as the cloud of humanity did, in the ancient fable, from the divine lover of Semele. He was endeavouring to encourage his sister, and to bring her to look on his intent in a less tragic light than she was prepared to do, and with passionate eloquence he unfolded his designs to her. Let me at the first word, he said, relieve your mind from all fear on my account. I will not task myself beyond my powers, nor will I needlessly seek danger. I feel that I know what ought to be done, and as my presence is necessary for the accomplishment of my plans, I will take especial care to preserve my life. I am now going to undertake an office fitted for me. I cannot intrigue or work a torturous path through the labyrinth of men's vices and passions, but I can bring patience and sympathy and such aid as art affords to the bed of disease. I can raise from earth the miserable orphan." and awaken to new hopes the shut heart of the mourner. I can enchain the plague in limits, and set a term to the misery it would occasion. Courage, forbearance, and watchfulness are the forces I bring towards this great work. Oh, I shall be something now, for my birth I have aspired like the eagle, but unlike the eagle my wings have failed, and my vision has been blinded. Disappointment and sickness have hitherto held dominion over me. 
twin-born with me my wood was for ever enchained by the shall not of these my tyrants a shepherd-boy that tends a silly flock on the mountains was more in the scale of society than i congratulate me then that i have found fitting scope for my powers i have often thought of offering my services to the pestilence-stricken towns of france and italy but fear of paining you and expectation of this catastrophe withheld me to england and to englishmen i dedicate myself if i can save one of her mighty spirits from the deadly shaft if i can ward disease from one of her smiling cottages i shall not have lived in vain strange ambition this yet such was adrian he appeared given up to contemplation averse to excitement a lowly student a man of visions but afford him worthy theme and like to the lark at break of day arising from sullen earth sings hymns at heaven's gate so did he spring up from listlessness and unproductive thought to the highest pitch of virtuous action with him went enthusiasm the high-wrought resolve the eye that without blenching could look at death with us remained sorrow anxiety and unendurable expectation of evil the man says lord bacon who hath wife and children has given hostages to fortune vain was all philosophical reasoning vain all fortitude vain vain a reliance on probable good i might heap high the scale with logic courage and resignation but let one fear for idris and our children enter the opposite one and overweighed it kicked the beam the plague was in london fools that we were not long ago to have foreseen this we wept over the ruin of the boundless continents of the east and the desolation of the western world while we fancied that the little channel between our island and the rest of the earth was to preserve us alive among the dead it were no mighty leap methinks from calais to dover the eye easily discerns the sister-land they were united once and the little path that runs between looks in a map but as a trodden footway through the high grass yet this small interval was to save us the sea was to rise a wall of adamant without disease and misery within a shelter from evil a nook of the garden of paradise a particle of celestial soil which no evil could invade truly we were wise in our generation to imagine all these things but we are awake now the plague is in london the air of england is tainted and her sons and daughters strew the unwholesome earth and now the sea late our defence seems our prison bound hemmed in by its gulfs we shall die like the famished inhabitants of a besieged town other nations have a fellowship in death but we shut out from all neighbourhood must bury our own dead and little england become a wide wide tomb this feeling of universal misery assumed concentration and shape when i looked on my wife and children and the thought of danger to them possessed my whole being with a fear how could i save them i revolved a thousand and a thousand plans they should not die first i would be gathered to nothingness ere infection should come anear those idols of my soul i would walk barefoot through the world to find an uninfected spot i would build my home on some wave-tossed plank drifted about on the barren shoreless ocean i would betake me with them to some wild beast's den where a tiger's cubs which i would slay had been reared in health i would seek the mountain eagle's eyrie and live years suspended in some inaccessible recess of a sea-bounding cliff no labour too great no scheme too wild if it promised life to them oh ye heart-strings of mine could ye be torn asunder and my soul not spend itself in tears of blood for sorrow idris after the first shock regained a portion of fortitude she studiously shut out all prospect of the future and cradled her heart in present blessings she never for a moment lost sight of her children but while they in health sported about her she could cherish contentment and hope a strange and wild restlessness came over me the more intolerable because i was forced to conceal it my fears for adrian were ceaseless august had come and the symptoms of plague increased rapidly in london it was deserted by all who possessed the power of removing and he the brother of my soul was exposed to the perils from which all but slaves enchained by circumstance fled he remained to combat the fiend his side unguarded his toils unshared infection might even reach him and he die unattended and alone by day and night these thoughts pursued me i resolved to visit london to see him to quiet these agonizing throes by the sweet medicine of hope or the opiate of despair 
It was not until I arrived at Brentford that I perceived much change in the face of the country. The better sort of houses were shut up, the busy trade of the town palsied. There was an air of anxiety among the few passengers I met, and they looked wonderingly at my carriage, the first they had seen pass towards London since pestilence sat on its high places and possessed its busy streets. I met several funerals, they were slenderly attended by mourners, and were regarded by the spectators as omens of direst import. Some gazed on these processions with wild eagerness, others fled timidly, some wept aloud. Adrian's chief endeavour, after the immediate succour of the sick, had been to disguise the symptoms and progress of the plague from the inhabitants of London. He knew that fear and melancholy forebodings were powerful assistance to disease, that desponding and brooding care rendered the physical nature of man peculiarly susceptible of infection. No unseemly sights were therefore discernible, the shops were in general open, the concourse of passengers in some degree kept up, but although the appearance of an infected town was avoided, to me, who had not beheld it since the commencement of the visitation, London appeared sufficiently changed. There were no carriages, and grass had sprung high in the streets, the houses had a desolate look, most of the shutters were closed, and there was a ghast and frightened stare in the persons I met, very different from the usual business-like demeanour of the Londoners. My solitary carriage attracted notice as it rattled along towards the protectoral palace, and the fashionable streets leading to it wore a still more dreary and deserted appearance. I found Adrian's antechamber crowded, it was his hour for giving audience. I was unwilling to disturb his labours, and waited, watching the ingress and egress of the petitioners. They consisted of people of the middling and lower classes of society, whose means of subsistence failed with the cessation of trade, and of the busy spirit of money-making in all its branches peculiar to our country. There was an air of anxiety, sometimes of terror, in the newcomers, strongly contrasted with the resigned and even satisfied mien of those who had had audience. I could read the influence of my friend in their quickened motions and cheerful faces. Two o'clock struck, after which none were admitted, those who had been disappointed went sullenly or sorrowfully away, while I entered the audience chamber. I was struck by the improvement that appeared in the health of Adrian. He was no longer bent to the ground like an over-nursed flower of spring that, shooting up beyond its strength, is weighed down even by its own coronal of blossoms. His eyes were bright, his countenance composed, an air of concentrated energy was diffused over his whole person, much unlike its former languor. He sat at a table with several secretaries, who were arranging petitions or registering the notes made during that day's audience. Two or three petitioners were still in attendance. I admired his justice and patience. Those who possessed a power of living out of London he advised immediately to quit it, affording them the means of so doing. Others whose trade was beneficial to the city, or who possessed no other refuge, he provided with advice for better avoiding the epidemic, relieving overloaded families, supplying the gaps made in others by death. Order, comfort, and even health rose under his influence, as from the touch of a magician's wand. "'I am glad you are come,' he said to me, when we were at last alone. "'I can only spare a few minutes, and must tell you much in that time. The plague is now in progress. It is useless closing one's eyes to the fact. The deaths increase each week.' What will come, I cannot guess. As yet, thank God, I am equal to the government of the town, and I look only to the present. Ryland, whom I have so long detained, has stipulated that I shall suffer him to depart before the end of this month. The deputy appointed by Parliament is dead, another therefore must be named. I have advanced my claim, and I believe that I shall have no competitor. Tonight the question is to be decided, as there is a call of the house for the purpose. You must nominate me, Lionel. Ryland, for shame, cannot show himself, but you, my friend, will do me this service.' How lovely is devotion! Here was a youth, royally sprung, bred in luxury, by nature averse to the usual struggles of a public life, and now, in time of danger, at a period when to live was the utmost scope of the ambitious, he, the beloved and heroic Adrian, made in sweet simplicity an offer to sacrifice himself for the public good. The very idea was generous and noble, but, beyond this, his unpretending manner, his entire want of the assumption of a virtue, rendered his act ten times more touching. 
I would have withstood his request, but I had seen the good he diffused, I felt that his resolves were not to be shaken, so, with a heavy heart, I consented to do as he asked. He grasped my hand affectionately. Thank you, he said. You have relieved me from a painful dilemma, and are, as you ever were, the best of my friends. Farewell, I must now leave you for a few hours. Go you and converse with Ryland. Although he deserts his post in London, he may be of the greatest service in the north of England, by receiving and assisting travellers, and contributing to supply the metropolis with food. Awaken him, I entreat you, to some sense of duty. Adrian left me, as I afterwards learnt, upon his daily task of visiting the hospitals, and inspecting the crowd in parts of London. I found Ryland much altered, even from what he had been when he visited Windsor. Perpetual fear had jaundiced his complexion and shrivelled his whole person. I told him of the business of the evening, and a smile relaxed the contracted muscles. He desired to go. Each day he expected to be infected by pestilence. Each day he was unable to resist the gentle violence of Adrian's detention. The moment Adrian should be legally elected his deputy, he would escape to safety. Under this impression he listened to all I said, and elevated almost to joy by the near prospect of his departure— he entered into a discussion concerning the plans he should adopt in his own county, forgetting, for the moment, his cherished resolution of shutting himself up from all communication in the mansion and grounds of his estate. In the evening, Adrian and I proceeded to Westminster. As we went, he reminded me of what I was to say and do, yet, strange to say, I entered the chamber without having once reflected on my purpose. Adrian remained in the coffee-room, while I, in compliance with his desire, took my seat in St. Stephen's. There reigned unusual silence in the chamber. I had not visited it since Raymond's protectorate, a period conspicuous for a numerous attendance of members, for the eloquence of the speakers and the warmth of the debate. The benches were very empty. Those by custom occupied by the hereditary members were vacant. The city members were there, the members for the commercial towns, few landed proprietors, and not many of those who entered Parliament for the sake of a career. The first subject that occupied the attention of the House was an address from the Lord Protector, praying them to appoint a deputy during a necessary absence on his part. A silence prevailed till one of the members coming to me whispered that the Earl of Windsor had sent him word that I was to move his election, in the absence of the person who had been first chosen for this office. Now for the first time I saw the full extent of my task, and I was overwhelmed by what I had brought on myself. Ryland had deserted his post through fear of the plague, from the same fear Adrian had no competitor and I, the nearest kinsman of the Earl of Windsor, was to propose his election. I was to thrust this selected and matchless friend into the post of danger. Impossible! The die was cast. I would offer myself as candidate. The few members who were present had come more for the sake of terminating the business by securing a legal attendance than under the idea of a debate. I had risen mechanically, my knees trembled. Irresolution hung on my voice as I uttered a few words on the necessity of choosing a person adequate to the dangerous task in hand. But when the idea of presenting myself in the room of my friend intruded, the load of doubt and pain was taken from off me. My words flowed spontaneously, my utterance was firm and quick. I adverted to what Adrian had already done, I promised the same vigilance in furthering all his views. I drew a touching picture of his vacillating health, I boasted of my own strength, I prayed them to save even from himself this scion of the noblest family in England. My alliance with him was the pledge of my sincerity, my union with his sister, my children, his presumptive heirs, were the hostages of my truth. This unexpected turn in the debate was quickly communicated to Adrian. He hurried in and witnessed the termination of my impassioned harangue. I did not see him, my soul was in my words, my eyes could not perceive that which was, while a vision of Adrian's form tainted by pestilence and sinking in death floated before them. He seized my hand as I concluded. Unkind, he cried, you have betrayed me. Then springing forwards with the air of one who had a right to command, he claimed the place of deputy as his own. He had bought it, he said, with danger, and paid for it with toil. His ambition rested there, and after an interval devoted to the interests of his country, was I to step in and reap the profit? Let them remember what London had been when he arrived. The panic that prevailed brought famine. 
while every moral and legal tie was loosened he had restored order this had been a work which required perseverance patience and energy and he had neither slept nor waked but for the good of his country would they dare wrong him thus would they wrest his hard-earned reward for him to bestow it on one who never having mingled in public life would come a tyro to the craft in which he was an adept he demanded the place of deputy as his right ryland had shown that he preferred him never before had he who was born even to the inheritance of the throne of england never had he asked favour or honour from those now his equals but who might have been his subjects would they refuse him could they thrust back from the path of distinction and laudable ambition the heir of their ancient kings and heap another disappointment on a fallen house no one had ever before heard adrian allude to the rights of his ancestors none had ever before suspected that power or the suffrage of the many could in any manner become dear to him he had begun his speech with vehemence he ended with unassuming gentleness making his appeal with the same humility as if he had asked to be the first in wealth honour and power among englishmen and not as was the truth to be the foremost in the ranks of loathsome toils and inevitable death a murmur of approbation rose after his speech oh do not listen to him i cried he speaks false false to himself i was interrupted and silence being restored we were ordered as was the custom to retire during the decision of the house i fancied that they hesitated and that there was some hope for me i was mistaken hardly had we quitted the chamber before adrian was recalled and installed in his office of lord deputy to the protector we returned together to the palace why lionel said adrian what did you intend you could not hope to conquer and yet you gave me the pain of a triumph over my dearest friend this is mockery i replied you devote yourself you the adored brother of idris the being of all the world contains dearest to our hearts you devote yourself to an early death i would have prevented this my death would be a small evil or rather i should not die while you cannot hope to escape as to the likelihood of escaping said adrian ten years hence the cold stars may shine on the graves of all of us but as to my peculiar liability to infection i can easily prove both logically and physically that in the midst of contagion i have a better chance of life than you this is my post i was born for this to rule england in anarchy to save her in danger to devote myself for her the blood of my forefathers cries aloud in my veins and bids me be first among my countrymen or if this mode of speech offend you let me say that my mother the proud queen instilled early into me a love of distinction and all that if the weakness of my physical nature and my peculiar opinions had not prevented such a design might have made me long since struggle for the lost inheritance of my race but now my mother or if you will my mother's lessons awaken within me i cannot lead on to battle i cannot through intrigue and faithlessness rear again the throne upon the wreck of english public spirit but i can be the first to support and guard my country now that terrific disasters and ruin have laid strong hands upon her that country and my beloved sister are all i have i will protect the first the latter i commit to your charge if i survive and she be lost i were far better dead preserve her for her own sake i know that you will if you require any other spur think that in preserving her you preserve me her faultless nature one summer of perfections is wrapped up in her affections if they were hurt she would droop like an unwatered floweret and the slightest injury they receive is a nipping frost to her already she fears for us she fears for the children she adores and for you the father of these her lover husband protector and you must be near her to support and encourage her return to windsor then my brother for such you are by every tie fill the double place my absence imposes on you and let me in all my sufferings here turn my eyes towards that dear seclusion and say there is peace End of chapter 6